0: A reading from the first book of Samuel. Samuel said to Saul, Stop, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul replied, Speak. Samuel then said, Though little in your own esteem, are you not leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel and sent you on a mission, saying, Go and put the sinful amyclites under a band of destruction. Fight against them until you have exterminated them. Why then have you disobeyed the Lord? You have pounced on the spoil, thus displeasing the Lord. Saul answered Samuel, I did indeed obey the Lord and fulfill the mission on which the Lord sent me. I had brought back Agag and I have destroyed Amalek under the ban. But from the spoil the men took sheep and oxen, the best of what had been banned, to sacrifice to the Lord their God in Gilgal. But Samuel said, Does the Lord so delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the command of the Lord? Obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission than the fat of rams. For a sin like divination is rebellion, and presumption is a crime of idolatry. Because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he too has rejected you as ruler. Verbum Domini. To the upright I will show the saving power of God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, for your burnt offerings are before me always. I take from your house no bullock, no goats out of your fold. Why do you recite my statutes and profess my covenant with your mouth, though you hate discipline and cast my words behind you? When you do these things, shall I be deaf to it? Or do you think that I am like yourself? I will correct you by drawing them up before your eyes. He that offers praise as a sacrifice glorifies me. And to him that goes the right way, I will show the salvation of God.
1: To discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. Dominus vobiscum.
0: Et unus
1: sit sancti Evangelii secundo Markum. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were accustomed to fast. People came to Jesus and objected. Why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old cloak. If he does, its fullness pulls away, the new from the old, and the tear gets worse. Likewise, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skins are ruined. Rather, new wine is poured into fresh wineskins. Verbum <laughs> Domini, Before I begin with the homily, I first wanted to mention that on this day that we observe the national U.S. holiday of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we continue to pray for all efforts in this country and around the world to end racism once and for all in all its forms. Racism is a grave sin that has no place in our society and especially in the church. It is an injustice that injures that peace that we all wish to share as members of the mystical body of Christ. And we thank God for the advances in human and civil rights that have been accomplished so far. And we continue to strive for the advancement and protection of the rights, liberty, justice, and peace for all peoples, regardless of any of their personal characteristics or traits. Opposition to racism in the church is rooted in the teaching on the inherent God-given dignity of every human life from conception to natural death. And as the U.S. bishops have taught in a document released in 2018, racist acts are sinful because they violate justice. They reveal innate of failure to recognize, to acknowledge the human dignity of the persons offended, to recognize them as the neighbors Christ calls us to love. And the bishops have called all of us to a genuine conversion of hearts, a conversion that will compel change and the reform of our institutions and society. And this call to conversion applies not only to every individual, but also to collective society. And as the bishops have said in Christ, we can find the strength and the grace necessary to make that journey. In the first reading for Mass today, the prophet Samuel speaks to King Saul about the importance of obedience. And one of the most prominent themes that is found throughout the Old Testament is the necessity of obedience. Obedience is directly related to faith. In fact, it is impossible to obey God without first having faith in him. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church speaks about the obedience of faith in paragraph 144. It says, to obey, from the Latin, ob audire to hear or listen to, in faith is to submit freely to the word that has been heard because its truth is guaranteed by God who is truth itself. Abraham is the model of such obedience offered us by script, sacred scripture. The Virgin Mary is its most perfect embodiment. So obedience is directly related to hearing or listening. It involves listening to the word of the Lord, to his commandments, to his ordinances, decrees, his laws, and then carrying them out in our everyday activities. Hence, to obey means to listen well. And sometimes when a parent is dealing with a disobedient child, they might say something like, why aren't you listening to me? In other words, why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do? It is not sufficient to simply hear what the Lord is saying to us, but to also do our best to put it into practice, according to the way that God wills for us to do. Now, the Lord had commanded King Saul, through his prophet Samuel, to kill Agog who was a wicked king who had been an enemy of Israel, and to devote to destruction everything in the city of Amalek. The Israelites were to, to not only to kill every man, woman, child, and infant, but also all the animals. Now, of course, this might sound harsh to our sensitive modern ears, but we must keep in mind that the main lesson in this episode is strict obedience to the word of the Lord not whether the command itself is too brutal. And the Hebrew word for devoting to destruction is harem, which is also known as placing under a ban. And this word has a connotation of something being entirely dedicated to God for destruction, almost as if it is to be offered as a sacrificial holocaust. And hence, what Samuel has commanded Saul to do is a solemn command, from the Lord, that must be carefully followed. Unfortunately, Saul chooses not to obey fully the Lord's command, as he spares Agog, the Amalek king, and the best of the sheep, oxen, fattened calves, and lambs. Anything else that the Israelites deemed worth, worthless was destroyed. So he didn't completely take, he didn't complete the complete the ban. And when Samuel confronts Saul, Saul claims that he had spared the best of the animals among the Amalekites so that they might be offered as sacrifices to the Lord. In other words, Saul is claiming that he had good intentions for sparing the best of the spoils. It's possible that Saul is telling Samuel that his intentions were pure so that he might cover up his sin of disobedience. Or maybe he actually meant what he said. Perhaps he wanted the animals for himself and was only telling Samuel what he thought the prophet wanted to hear to get himself out of trouble. However, regardless of whether it was Saul's intention to offer these animals as sacrifices to the Lord, even if he had the best of intentions, the fundamental problem is that he directly disobeyed the word of the Lord. He chose to take matters into his own hands and thus broke faith with the Lord God. In a sense, he acted as his own God, contrary to the will of the one Lord God. And thus Samuel's response to Saul makes perfect sense. He says, does the Lord so delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the command of the Lord? Obedience is better than sacrifice and submission than the fat of rams. What good is the offering of sacrifice if the person offering it lacks faith and trust in the Lord? Sacrifice without faith or obedience becomes mere superstition. And Samuel goes on to say, for a sin like divination is rebellion and presumption is the crime of idolatry. Saul's sin of disobedience is thus comparable to the, sin, the superstitious practice of divination and the, false, and the worship of false gods. It is no wonder then that later in the first book of Samuel, King Saul will eventually fall into the actual sin of divination when he goes to consult a medium for a seance to speak with the dead. Disobedience in one area will lead to a cascade of disobedience if left unchecked. Saul had claimed that he was saving the best of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord, even though by doing so, he was disobeying the Lord's command. And this suggests that Saul thought that what he wanted to do was better than what the Lord had commanded him to do. St. Francis of Assisi has written about the topic of perfect obedience in his admonition to his friars. And when it comes to obeying one's superior, St. Francis says, and should the subject sometimes see that some things might be better and more useful for his soul than what the prelate might command him, let him offer such things as a sacrifice to God, and instead earnestly try to fulfill the wishes of the prelates. For this is loving obedience— because it pleases God and neighbor. In other words, if, even if Saul thought that it was senseless to destroy everything in the city of Amalek, and that he would benefit more from keeping those animals, he should have simply offered those things as a sacrifice to the Lord out of obedience. And St. Francis has some harsh criticism for those who disobey their superiors. He says, there are indeed many religious, who under the pretext of seeking something better than what the prelate commands, look back and return to the vomit of their own will. These are murderers who cause many souls to perish by reason of their bad example. And thus, even those who have charge over them, who, who, I'm sorry, even those who have ostensibly good intentions for disobeying those who have charge over them are causing serious harm to the souls of others by being disobedient naturally saint francis says that we should not only obey a superior if we are commanded to do we should not obey a superior if we are commanded to do something sinful but even in such a case we are not to abandon our superior rather we are to continue to love them So, even in a case where the superior may, God forbid, command something sinful, we are not to obey in that instance because we're not supposed to do something sinful, but we're not supposed to abandon the superior. We're supposed to pray for him. We're supposed to love him. Now, as members of the church, it would behoove us to remind ourselves of these lessons from holy men such as the prophet Samuel and St. Francis of Assisi. And since we owe love, obedience, and respect to Jesus Christ, then by extension we owe love, obedience, and respect to the magisterium of the church, the supreme pontiff, the successor of Peter, and the bishops in communion with him. And there has been an alarming lack of love, respect, and obedience towards the magisterium in recent years, especially among those Catholics who ought to know better those who consider themselves faithful Catholics. It might be helpful for us to remind ourselves of the teaching of the Catechism, about the Magisterium. After all, it was to his apostles and disciples, and by extension to their superiors, to their successors, that Jesus said, he who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me. And paragraph 85 of the Catechism says, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Now notice here that it says the living office. The living office. Not the past office. Not the office of dead popes. It is the living, teaching office of the church, alone. And the paragraph goes on, its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. And this means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome. Now notice that it doesn't say that the authority of authentic interpretation of the word of God is given to individual priests, to theologians, or even to individual bishops. It's entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome, the Holy Father. We place our trust in the living magisterium of the church, not because we trust mere human beings, but because we place our faith and trust in the Holy Spirit, who is is active in and through the authentic magisterium. In paragraph 891 of the Catechism, it says, when the church proposes a doctrine for belief as being divinely revealed and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with the obedience of faith. This infallibility extends as far as the deposit of divine revelation itself. So this obedience of faith applies to supreme acts of the magisterium, as when the Holy Father proclaims a dogma ex cathedra. However, the obedience of faith is not limited only to supreme exercises of the magisterium, but also extends to ordinary exercises of the magisterium. That is, in instances when matters of faith and morals are taught, but are not pronounced in a definitive manner such as in an encyclical or in another form of papal or episcopal teaching. And paragraph 892 teaches, quote, divine assistance is also given to the successors of the apostles teaching in communion with the successor of Peter, and in a particular way to the Bishop of Rome, pastor of the whole church, when without arriving at an infallible definition, and without pronouncing in a definitive manner, they propose in the exercise of the ordinary magisterium a teaching that leads to a better understanding of revelation in matters of faith and morals. To this ordinary teaching, the faithful are to adhere to it with religious assent, which, though distinct from the assent of faith, is nonetheless an extension of it. And notice that this does not say that the faithful must understand or even agree with what is taught in the ordinary magisterium. They are simply to give religious assent to what has been taught. And this attitude of religious assent is not only a sign of obedience and respect towards the magisterium, but it is also a sign of obedience and faith by extension to Christ who established the magisterium. And there are some people who do not understand some of the teachings coming from the living magisterium and who immediately conclude that the magisterium is either intentionally causing confusion or they attribute some other devious motive to the magisterium. And when a person does this without sufficient reflection and without honestly seeking clarification, in a spirit of goodwill and filial loyalty, they may have committed the sin of rash judgment, especially if they have publicly criticized the Holy Father and the Magisterium, which is a grave sin, if they have done so with full knowledge and full consent. And to avoid the sin of rash judgment, St. Ignatius of Loyola gives us the following advice. He says, every good Christian ought to be more ready to give a favorable interpretation to another's statement than to condemn it. But if he cannot do so, let him ask how the other understands it. And if the latter understands it badly, let the former correct him with love. With love. If that does not suffice, let the Christian try all suitable ways to bring the other to a correct interpretation so that he may be saved. And the Catechism also teaches that, quote, everyone should be careful to interpret insofar as possible his neighbor's thoughts, words, and deeds in a favorable way. When a teaching is issued from the magisterium, this is even a higher level. We should be even more diligent to understand it properly in a spirit of faith and goodwill. Our default position as faithful Catholics towards the magisterium should not be to receive the teaching with a spirit of suspicion and criticism, but with a spirit of faith, obedience, religion, charity, and filial piety. If we do not understand something, we should be more ready to admit that the deficiency is ours rather than to suggest the magisterium is doing something devious or deceptive. And in this way, we avoid giving scandal to others, especially to those Catholics whose faith is weak, or even those outside the church who are perplexed by the dissent and constant infighting of Catholics. And we also avoid setting ourselves up as judges over the magisterium, and thus making ourselves our own popes. And so today, we are invited once again by the Lord to renew our commitment to obedience to his word, to his commands, and to what he has revealed to us by means of scripture, tradition, and magisterial teaching. We are all called to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ, not by sowing the seeds of dissent, doubt, division, and distrust of one another, especially of the magisterium, but by placing our complete trust in the word of Christ, who established the church upon the rock of St. Peter. And if we truly believe in Jesus Christ and in his promises, especially that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, then we should have absolutely nothing to fear. In giving us the magisterium, Christ has set us free by giving us access to to his teaching, the message of the gospel. And it is this saving, liberating word of the gospel that we wish to proclaim and make known to the whole world, with one unified voice as the church.